Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. I want to wish everyone a very happy new year. And um, just remind you that Mayor Johnson is your special education super source. They've made it easy to shop three different ways by price, category, or specific solution. Explore different product collections to help you discover the specific solutions for specific needs. With every child, there is a solution, and it's just a click away at mayorjohnson.com. I am so excited to kick off this new season with a fantastic guest. Dr. Richard Selznick is the psychologist, nationally certified school psychologist, graduate school professor, university professor of pediatrics and school consultant. He is the author of two books. One of them you know well. He was on our show, The Inclusive Class, talking about the shutdown learner, helping your academically discouraged child. And his recent um, book has been released, School Struggles, A Guide to Your Shutdown Learners. Among the many topics he discusses with parents is dyslexia, understanding the shutdown learner formula. He discusses bullying, executive functioning skills, everything um, really that involves the child's difficulty when they're struggling in school. And Dr. uh, Selznick's new book, School Struggles, is written for parents with humor, and when you read it, you will love it. It's written with humor, insight, and an invaluable experience working with these kids and their families. And my 18-year-old daughter was home from college. And I had the book on my um, coffee table. And she picked it up, and she was going through it, and she said, this book is fantastic. This guy is really smart. He really gets these kids. And, you know, he really does. So um, I am, it's just a pleasure to introduce Dr. Richard Selznick. How are you? Hi, Marion. Thanks for having me. I'm great. I think maybe I should take your daughter on the road. I need some uh, an advanced person. <laughs> yeah, but, you know. It was just so cool the way she just, she just loved it. Um, and you know, it, it, because it really is. It's you really get the kids, and it's really there's a lot of humor in it. So you know, parents will love it. Um, you know, and I love the book on many different levels as well. You know, I loved the analogies. You have great analogies in the book, and you know, your relatedness um, not only to the kids but to the parents. And what I thought was really one of the best features in the book was your takeaway points that you have at the end of each chapter. Thank you. It's great. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they're great. It's really because it sums it up and it really leaves something, um, you know, in your mind to think about. So, you know, let's get started because we have a lot to cover. So, you know, first I want to ask you, the shutdown learner, you know, what is a shutdown learner? Well, the shutdown learner was uh, were many kids that I – saw over the years, and I you know, carry a sort of prototype around of a number of them, and these were kids who, over time, more they, they followed a, a kind of blend of, of traits, of characteristics, but often they were very, I call them high spatial kids, or uh, Lego kids, you know, they, they really enjoyed hands-on type of activities. Um, they were often movement-based kids, creative-style kids. But the down, so those are all the positive sides, you know. The damp, but the downsides so they were, were that they were often struggling with, you know, the reading, spelling, and writing skills in school. Um, often they fit the profile of dyslexia. I just I bent over backwards to start to try and stay away from you know, clinical terms in the book and the shutdown idea were was linked to, you know, just the, the notion that over time these kids were getting discouraged and more and more deflated and, you know, my, my the imagery of like air leaking out of the tire over time was mm-hmm. what I saw with many of these kids. So that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And, you know, I'm glad that you said that about the, you know, not really wanting to specify dyslexia because, you know, as you will read in this book and as parents, um, you know, who've traveled this journey will tell you and those who are struggling really need to know that there are a lot of other components to the struggling learner. So, you know, in the in the book, you give seven character, characteristics that cause parents a lot of anxiety and concern. And you also give a formula um, that often creates the cracks in the foundation. So let's start with the seven common characteristics. What what are the characteristics that you see in these kids? 
I think that number one would be that would be that spa- spatial child and visual, the child who's, who thrives with hands-on activities, and I. I think that's a, that's a top quality. Even though since the book came out, since Shutdown Learner came out, many people contacted me and said, "I think my child's a Shutdown Learner." It may not be as visual as you're saying, but so I, I, I want to also include sort of there's a whole group of discouraged kids out there who are maybe not as spatially oriented as I'm suggesting. But I do think that many of the kids that are struggling in school, that number one quality is that that Lego brains style kid, the, the kid who's uh, really thrives with those kind of tasks. Um, a second characteristic is, is just that the, the discouragement is kicking in very early on. Um, these are often the kids who are starting to feel, I think typically first, second grade, like I'm not measuring up. So that second quality is kind of a discouragement. Um, a third would be that they tend to be weak with language related tasks such as phonemic awareness, rhyming, that kind of thing, which then leads to the biggie, which is where the dyslexia comes in forth and you know, could cover a lot of territory, the, the decoding skills that many of these kids struggle with. And then later, another quality would be the uh, reading fluency issues and a huge phenomenon that I think is getting worse. And I, I'm sure we could comment on and spend a lot of time on this would be, you know, the testing, the writing process, I see this as a huge variable for so many of the kids. Right. And especially, and I'm generalizing somewhat, the boys, I find many of the boys really avoiding and detesting writing. Um, from there, you also have a quality of, of anger that over time, in the different styles, some of the kids are not showing, feeling the anger, but I think uh, another related quality is the insecurity and the sense of disconnection. So I think those are the biggies that, that come up for me with it when, it, when you're talking about the shutdown learner style. I think I'm I glad you mentioned the testing. We're, we're <laughs> going to go into that later on because that drives me crazy. Which one? Um, I said we're going to go into testing a little later on because that's a, a topic that just drives me crazy for these kids. Right. Um, you know, and, and you know, to follow up on this, you have a formula, and mm-hmm. the formula is really for cracks in the foundation, and they are time, lack of understanding, strained patter, uh, patterns of family communication, and you say that this equals school struggling and shutdown learners. So can you just explain to the listeners what these are and how this formula creates struggling mm-hmm. learners? My joke was I, I was really bad in math, so this is my one attempt at sort of an ma- algebraic equation. You know, I looked yeah. out as kind of a... It was very impressive, very impressive. It, it, yeah, it, you know, I got the, the bottom, the additive, and the you know, bottom line there where I'm adding this all up, and it equals the shutdown learner. Well, it, you know, what part was I was looking at so many of these kids. Okay, the, let's say you take a kid, a 16-year-old, who is pretty shut down and pretty disconnected with school which is really where most of the kids that I was writing about originally were sort of in that zone of teenage uh, learning disabilities, disconnection over time. So I thought, well, how'd they get there? So how they got there was this additive formula that, by my observation, where early on, you know, four, five, six years old, you can see these cracks in the foundation. That was the first one. And then plus, the plus would be time because what happened – what happens often is, you know, they might go to the pediatrician. I'm not blaming anyone. I don't. I want to try to really stay away from any blame. I'm not saying the pediatricians do anything wrong with teachers, but the pediatrician might give a message. Well, you know, they're boys. Uh, they'll be fine. He's great. So time goes by, or the teachers frequent the school say, well, you know, we have to. We'll wait and see. We think he's he, right. he or she, not just the boys, uh, are going to be okay. But time goes by. And by the end of first grade, there are about 50% of the population's reading, you know, starting to read chapter books. And then the other half is sort of mucking along a little bit and struggling. So time is, and then second, third grade, now a lot of time has gone by. So now you have this widening gap. So the, the next part of that equation is, a lack, in a sense, a lack of understanding. And I'm not saying people are being insensitive to the child, but the lack of understanding is something like, well, you know, he's just not trying hard enough. Or, what's mm-hmm. wrong with Joey? He, you know, he, could, he if he only, you know, he could do it if he just paid attention. Those kind of statements, which suggest a lack of understanding. So you have that into the formula, and then this widening 
skill deficit issue. Then by, let's say, fifth, sixth grade, you know, the, their emotional factors are adding into this formula. There's more and more tension, more insecurity, and frequently, not always, strained patterns of family communication kind of kick in, you know, the blaming dance that I described, you know, if you only were tougher on him, he would, you know, he would be doing fine or she would be doing fine if you were softer, you know, that kind of blaming that can go back and forth within within families. And I've seen school issues really tear up families. I mean, it's, it's, it's still amazing. I think I've, I've literally seen thousands of kids over the years in my career, and, it, and I'm still amazed at how devastating school problems can be to families and how challenging it can be in terms of how people communicate with each other, whether it's parent to child, parent to parent, you know, and, and mm-hmm. then if, if people are different houses, well, you know, you should shut the television off earlier and you're not doing what, you know, there's, there could be all that going on in terms of different, you know, different parenting. You know, it's hard enough when you live under one roof, no less trying to, to you know, pull us together in, in two, two different homes. So that's yeah, the, that's it, it the formula. Very... It's kind of an additive formula that then equals or leads to um, a child who is, in, you know, pretty shut down and struggling with school. Right. And, you know, I, I lived through this with my oldest child because um, she struggled and she wound up being dyslexic. But for years, you know, kindergarten, mm-hmm. first grade, second grade, I would say to the teachers, you know, I don't understand that she's really having such a hard time. And mm-hmm. they were like, oh, she'll be fine. Oh, she'll grow out of it. And I can, I'll never forget it. I got a call one day and the teacher called. She was so excited. And she said, I just want to tell you, I've had this sentence written backwards that goes all the way around the classroom. And nobody in 12 years has ever read that sentence. And oh. your daughter stood up today and read the sentence, and I said, that's fantastic. Now she could run, if she could read forwards. Right, so and that if would she could walk fantastic. on her head or something. You know. right. But, you know, right. it was very difficult. And, I, you know, I could see where parents can be frustrated because, you know, as we're going to discuss later, um, they can test very, very well. And, well, that, you know, so yeah, that's sure. why these, that, a lot of them can, fall through the cracks. That's right. And that child might get good grades. I get that a lot. Well, exactly. And again, I, I think there's so many challenges on the table, you know, relative to special education and who gets service and who doesn't. Um, but but part of that is, you know, the, the issue of the grades. Well, she's getting good grades. What could what what could be your problem? And you know, you see as a parent that night struggling, struggling, or you see the amount of effort that went into it, or that you had to put in to keep the child afloat. And the grades, you know, may re- reflect more of a personality variable. But, you know, I, I, g- girls are very good at playing the system, you know. I mean, right. they know how to, they have more social awareness on average right. than the boys, you know. Again, I have to watch well, you know, a parent can see if the child is taking an hour to do homework right. that took a different child 10 minutes, that there's a problem. Is, is it ever too late to turn that around? You know, is, is there a certain point where, you know, a child is just, you know, middle school, high school, that it's I, just know, too I, difficult I, a, to turn know, all the dynamics around? In the business of, of psychology and school struggling and everything else, you, know, you you have to try to remain fundamentally optimistic. You know, so I'm I'm optimistic that at any age you can really turn around. I have some great stories with like that where a person who wanted to get into medical school who was identified as dyslexic by me, then came in and worked on, you know, Orton-Gillingham-type work from... <laughs> he went back and started working on his phonics, and he's a, a medical doctor today. I mean, he's a specialist. Right. But he recognized that there was something going on. He wasn't getting the scores he wanted on his boards. So, And I've seen other kids, not quite as dramatic, where, you know, they, they struggled for all of schooling, and then they finally, through their own motivation decided I want to work on this because I want to, and the one boy I, I really admired, he wanted to take, to take the heavy machinery course or something, you know, out West. And, and they had to, he had to read a manual and take this somewhat, you know, more involved reading that was involved with this heavy machinery course. And he, he, on his own, you know, drove to the center, came in, Worked on his reading skills, so I don't think it's too late. It's just that the later, it's it, you know, it's harder. The, you know, it's just you know, there are more variables that are kicking in. So the message should be that the earlier we identify these kids, the better. You know, the kids are much more malleable. They're they're optimistic. They they love. 
their relationship because the relationship is a huge variable here with the teachers that they work with, the specialists, that kind of thing. So. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a parent, I think that basically what you said, you really hit on something. Um, the last thing a parent should think is that my child is lazy because they're not lazy. And I think that if you stand behind the kid and you motivate the kid and you just, you know, try to keep the self-confidence, which is tough for these kids, it makes a difference. I mean, my oldest child now is an executive at a major fashion house, but she struggled. But, you no know, they overcome. My, kid. my kid's lazy. Come on now. I got a lazy one. Nobody's kid. No kids. Sure. Nobody I'm wants so to fail. You know, well, something that's struck me in the book was your phrase that we are losing our instinct for, instinct for childhood. So, you know, how are we losing our instinct, and is it just parents, or are teachers losing this instinct as well? You know, so many of the kids that I see, I, I it takes a lot. I mean, I've been working with children since, in some way, shape, or form, since I was a camp counselor, you know, like the age of 14 or 15, and then a teacher, a special ed teacher, and then a psychologist. So I've been interacting with, it came naturally with my dad, who's both the principal, he worked at the JCC, and all and my grandmother. So, to me, so many the kids that I see are fundamentally normal. If you know what I mean, they're just they're they're not mm-hmm. walking pathology. They're not disabilities. They're just kids, you know. And I just see so many parents and schools and people. Well, do you think he's got? this combination of disabilities. I'm like, I don't know. He's this little kid who, you know, (laughs) needs, he needs some skill development for sure. And, you know, he does need confidence building and give him some time here, gang. Let's, let's let him unfold on his own timetable bit. Uh, I think he'll be okay. You know, I, am I missing something? Yeah. Okay. Maybe, but he just, they just strike me as kids. And I think that in this day and age of, I mean, when I started in this business, I mean, we didn't talk like we talk now, you know, for better and for worse. I mean, I think some of it's great, you know, we have so much more understanding of these syndromes and the disabilities and everything else. On the other hand, I don't think we talk about kids enough, you know, just kids, you know, their temperament, their personalities, their, you know, you know, there was a movement a while ago, which we've totally forgotten about, that the difficult child, you know, that that most kids are pretty normal, but some are a little more difficult than others. And I, I tend to go in those directions more than, you know, thinking the child's flawed, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I mean, I think everybody's looking for a label um, where sometimes there is no label, and in general there isn't any specific label for any child if you combine you know, their environment, and you combine it, even if they do have disabilities, how is it related with other, you know, problems? So, you know, you're better off not even thinking that way. But, um, oh, that was a nice sound. Uh, wait, hold on one second here. I, I may have lost. Are you still there? I'm here. Oh, yeah. I just, um, you know, uh, you say that there, you can assess children for a reading brain. So, you know, I've never heard that before. And, you know, it was really interesting to me in the book. So um, why don't you explain what is a reading brain and how does that differ? Um, you know, it, I, I find that there are kids who are, um, you know, I use a lot of terminology to try to get kids and parents to get their mind around, you know, again, not so, so that the child doesn't work out, oh, I have this brain problem or I've got a glitch or something like that, um, but that they're, so I might say, you know, your building brain works really well. You know, your reading brain we need to work on a little bit, that kind of thing. I try to put a little humor into it so that your kid doesn't, you know, he, know, he or she knows, you know, I'm struggling with reading, so it's not like that's news right. to them. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm worried here. Are you hearing a beep on your side? Yes, I, I am. I'm worried that this phone, I had it fully charged. I'm going to try to make sure that I don't. No, it's okay. You. It's okay. It's, it's very safe. I'm worried that the battery's going to run out here. That's what I'm worried about. I hope that we're not going to have a problem with that. I have um, another phone. Um, so I'm using that as a way of uh, trying to translate to the child, um, you know, what's working right and what do we need to work on a little bit. And they get it, I think they get it intuitively. They get it right away. Because right, they know when they're struggling, and I think a lot yeah. of these kids, the reason they have these behavior issues is because they're embarrassed, you know? So they, they try to get attention or they try to divert attention, you know? It's really sad. No, it is. 
um, Marianne, I'm worried about if I do lose you, what, do I call you right back on the cell phone? Yeah, that would be fine. Okay, I'll, I'll tap right dance a little bit while, uh, okay. while you call back. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so we're good to go. And I made sure that uh, it was, uh, you know, charging all day in these phones. I don't know. Anyway. So, so, I mean, as far as our reading brain then, I mean, so we're talking about, you know, dyslexia, reading disabilities. But, you know, what really factors in in the book um, is common sense and mm-hmm. the impact of special education regulations and, and using common sense to mm-hmm. get these kids over the hurdle. Um, you know, and, and there's such a great chapter in the book. Common sense is, you know, often missing link, I think. Um, and you, you have common sense and a reasonable 504 plan. And this is where I see a lot of discrepancy when it comes to parents' opinions. Um, on their kids. You know, I see parents that want every possible accommodation, um, you know, that are going and really fighting for their kids. And there are others that don't want their child considered special education. And I think it often relates to the time that a neuropsych evaluation is suggested. And parents Mm -hmm. get, like, freaked out. Um, They feel judged. They feel that, you know, their child is going to be labeled. So, you know, why is it important to know the psychological and developmental level for a struggling learner? You know, how can parents use common sense when making this decision? I think it's a great topic. I love, you know, talking about this business of the 504. I think it's complicated. I think that people lose sight of what I see, at least, the 504 for the purpose of it. The purpose, as I understand it, is to is to level the playing field. That if if the child has these feet, you know, dis- disabling features, so to speak, um, that it's you know fundamentally unfair if we're competing at you know the same on the same tasks without giving me some basic accommodations. I just People will sometimes, like you said, they might go for the sort of um, uh, what I see as almost like moon, sun, and stars of, of, of you know, fifteen, twenty different accommodations. I mean, if there if there's one child in the class with a five hundred four, and there's usually four, five, six, seven, maybe, it's 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 impossible for a teacher to be able to do all of those accommodations that are listed. So, you know, it's the five hundred four is probably going to get filed away under. Okay, great, sure. We're, we're, we're doing the 504, but we're not really. So to me, common sense would be what are the top two or three things that could help my child? And not a boilerplate 504, but something that really matters. You know, if if my child truly reads slowly, and if time is going to help the child, then okay, then time is a common sense kind of you know recommendation. It shouldn't be a rubber stamp one. It's what is matching, what are the top two, three things that can really help level the playing field for your child. That, to me, is a common sense aspect of this. And that should be driving a parent's thinking, you know? Right, and, you know, the parents really need to have the input. I mean, there are some kids that need to be in the front of the classroom. You know, there are some kids that do better in the back of the classroom. There are some kids that need white noise. Some kids need, you know, that that special quiet room to test. So, you know, it really is. It comes down to common sense. Right. Another example is is our reading disabilities. A a simple, so many of the kids I see have reading disability dyslexia. So many of the kids. And... You know, it's common sense to me that if the, if a child has trouble with large words, you know, he, he reads the word porcupine as porcupine or whatever he's reading it as, that I have to help that child. The better teachers instinctively, intuitively do that. They don't need right. it necessarily legislated in uh, a legal document, but that's the common sense aspect. Well, of course I'll help him with that. He has trouble with those with, with those words. Sure, I'll go over and and give assistance. That's common sense. And, you know, you get teachers like that. With my youngest daughter, I mean, she was only in this class. Um, she was in this very difficult advanced class. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just after a couple of uh, week or two of school, the teacher came up to her and said, you know, I noticed that, um, you know, you have trouble when you're listening to a lesson, but you do unbelievably well when I have graphics or visuals up. Oh. And, you know, he he right. saw she was a visual learner, and he started doing everything with um, – 
Um, I don't even know what they're called anymore. Um, but, you know, using right, graphic organizers. And it may, but that's where a teacher really can make a big difference. And, you know, what? it also leads to um, one of my favorite analogies in the book, which is comparing learning um, to read and write to riding a bike and preventing the fall as early as possible. And you wrote that a mom detected this issue as early as kindergarten. Um, in her child, and I think a lot of parents, even first-time parents, um, you know, can can tell when there's a problem. So, how do we teach our kids to ride that reading bicycle, um, you know, without getting too many bruises? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's it's, it's a dry, the stage. I really use the uh, stages of reading development by the late Dr. Charles as a guideline for almost everything I do in terms of assessment and understanding where a child is, and it basically follows you know that that there's a there's a natural progression from basically birth all the way through and that there's some we're, we're all on a, somewhere on this continuum you know and for many of the kids that are leaving say stage 0 which typically ends into kindergarten going to stage 1 of reading they're struggling and i think that that we have to one important step for the parents is to is to understand is to understand that there are these stages I mean, that to, I teach that to parents all the time. Okay, you're in stage one, then this is what we need to be doing in stage one. If I do stage two activities that are already too far along in stage one, then that's going to, they're going to fall off the bicycle because they're not confident enough with those early stage skills that are that are characteristic of, of that stage one. You know, so you have to sort of follow, okay, that's where the instinct for childhood comes into play as well. You know, Dr. Seuss is a great example. I mean, that person, Dr. Seuss, I think, had an amazing instinct for unfolding mm-hmm. reading issues and, 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 you know, how to build confidence in readers and in young children. It's that kind of thing where not giving a child too much too soon, that's how you keep them somewhat on the bike. But the kids that have greater difficulty, that this, you know, the learning disabilities, features of style kids, those kids need a lot more time in an early stage with, with good guided, directed instruction in order for them to begin to internalize these skills. So are you saying basically then that there should be mastery of um – even smaller words before we start moving on to more I really complicated. I believe that strongly. I mean, that's that's a model that that I follow closely. You know, in stage one, when you're leaving stage one, you basically know your sight words, and you know one syllable words that have a close that have a short vowel sound. You know, and it could be nonsense words. You know, like the the C C V C C patterns. You know, clamp or something like that. You know, grot. You know, that, I'm making them up as we go, but, you know, yeah, that they should master those type of word patterns before moving on to the next. Now, the other, the other kids, you know, you, you, you know, you saw the smooth road kids, the kids that are, that, are, mm-hmm. that are starting to read chapter books by the end of first grade. Those kids are progressing. You don't have to be as controlling with the text because they've internalized the whole code, you see. So it's... You don't have to worry about that as much. They're just they're they're on the bike. They're moving along at a, at a faster clip, or not necessarily a faster clip, a smoother, smoother one. You know. Yeah. But I agree. And I think that, that this analogy. Yeah, but this this analogy, I think that I mean, for me, when I read it anyway, what I got out of it was, you know, I guess I'm a visual thinker, and you know, I, I looked at it like, well, here's the kid riding the bike going to the playground, and yeah. you know, he's two blocks behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it really gave me more of an understanding of, um, you know, how a child can be on a different level, for, you know, pedaling so hard oh. to keep up, and yeah. you know, you write about um, a child's instructional level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so why is the child's instructional level important, you know, for us to understand? And, you know, what is the, you, you talk about the independent level, the right. instructional level, and the frustration level, and um, how they affect learning. So I think this really ties into the bicycle riding. So can you yep. explain those levels and how it affects everything? Well, it's funny, you, you, you know, I'm mentioning it in the book as old school concepts. I mean, I guess I'm at that point in my life where certain concepts that meant a lot to me in earlier stages of my career were were popular or important, and I don't hear them talk about it as very much anymore. And I think it's a shame. You know, I think that this this notion of I don't hear parents talking or schools always oh, instructional level is. 
basically the independent level. And it's not just with school. It could be making your bed. You know, you look at a, a seven-year-old and you say, okay, is this child capable of independently making his or her bed? I'm using, you know, that I'm just emphasizing it doesn't have to mm-hmm. be academics. But let's say with reading, um, it, what level is the child comfortable with the text and able to process the information? You know, that's where they don't need any help at all and they get it and it's smooth and it's easy. That's their independent level. The instructional level is the level where they need some assistance. You know, um, let's say they can make their bed mostly, but they, you know, you might need to smooth over the, the covers some. That's kind of like the instructional level. My wife thinks I'm having trouble with my bed making skills. She's always commenting. On <laughs> but um, so you know, we we need to find that zone for the most part to move a child forward in whatever reading, math, you know, life skills. Um, to um, find that zone, which is the instructional level, to to really help them along. I'm hearing a lot of beeping. Should I call you right back? Sure. I'll call you back on the cell phone right right now, okay? Okay. All right, I'll call you right back. Bye. Well, listeners, if you'd like to call in, um, Dr. Selznick will be taking some of your calls. Um, The call-in number is um, 646-595-2881. And, um, you know, if you have a child who's struggling, you can feel free to um, call in. You know, I know that, you know, I learned a lot um, reading this book because it really just explains, as we're going to go into the emotional impact um, that these kids have, uh, that, that struggling has on them, and the social impact as far as making friends and um you know, how it can really just carry through. So, you know, if you have any questions, please feel free to call in as we wait for Dr. Selznick to call call us back. Um, his first book, The Shutdown Learner, was also fantastic, and they did an interview um, with Nicole Eriks and Terry Morrow on our other network, the Special Needs Talk Radio Network, and you can listen to that on the Inclusive Class. Okay, I think he's right here now. Hold on, listeners. Dr. Selznick, are you back? Hi, yeah, how are you? Terrific. Sorry good, I'm that. good. That's fine. You know, and you spoke also, um, just to go back, We t- you discussed the independent level, the instructional right. level, but I think really very important is the frustration level. Yeah, and and this is where, I mean, probably every day of my professional career, children come in where or parents will bring in samples of the worksheets, which I call worksheet burnout disorder as a side note, where the kids are operating at their frustration level. And, you know, the, hey, if the frustration level is just what it is, it's too hard, that it truly mm-hmm. is above their level. You know, if you want to go back to the bike riding imagery, you know, that they're falling off the bike and not just, you know, or, you know, I also use swimming pool imagery to take them back to the, to a, an easier part of the pool for them to work. And so many of the kids that I see are just, you know, in part because of the curriculum and the curriculum moves forward and we have to stay on it, um, are operating at levels that they can't handle. Right. And, you know, that's that's where the parents wind up just having so much anxiety because, you know, first they, there's that outside pressure that's like, why mm-hmm. can't my kid keep up? And then there's that internal pressure of, you know, I have to do something, I have to do something, and, um, you know, it's just really hard. But, you know, in this book you talk about things that, I mean, I've never heard of this one before. And I think, you know, after reading about it, it's really important. You write about something um, called low-frequency and high-frequency words. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how, I mean, why don't you tell everybody what they are and, um, you know, how that affects learning? Well, the, the low-frequency words are the, I mean, the, the high, let's start with the high-frequency words. The high-frequency high frequency words are the words that show up a lot in the text. These are words that you see quite often, typically, we call them sight words. Um Kids mostly, you know, that's where some of some kids, in a sense, have fooled people because in first or second grade they can manage the high frequency words, and people think they're they're reading okay. Um, but the low frequency words, I always use the example of porcupine. You could go through five grades and literally not see the word porcupine. It's a it's a low frequency word. 
they've done studies on this where they've shown words, you know, how often does the word sweater show up in the text? Um, insistent, porcupine. I mean, they don't show up all that often. So if I don't have adequately internalized skills to manage those words, then they're going to frustrate me and I'm going to be back in that frustration level. So it's you know, dyslexia, reading disability, and the shutdown and stuff is often a problem with, with a low-frequency word, you know, words that they don't see all that often in the text. And, you know, that to me when I was reading that chapter made me really think about how important it is for a parent a teacher to recognize a thinking style, a learning style, mm-hmm. because some kids will be sight learners where they'll see a word and they'll remember it. And, you know, there are other kids that maybe every time they see the word, they have to sound it out phonetically. Um, you know, and it can just be so so difficult, I would imagine. You know, when you yeah. have a teacher with 30 kids in the classroom to have to figure out each kid's um, oh, yeah. thinking and learning style, has got to be overwhelming for the teachers. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you, you talk about something, um, you call it curriculum ADHD. And, mm-hmm. you know, really it pertains a lot to the executive functioning skills and sluggish uh, cognitive tempo, which, mm-hmm. you know, we've heard about several times from um, Dr. Russell Barkley. Um, but for the listeners who may not have listened to that interview, um, tell us again what sluggish con- um, cognitive tempo is and how it affects a child with learning disabilities and, you know, really executive functioning, which is really the uh, grand poopa. Um, of reading difficulties, right? You know, this. It, I again, I, I use constantly uh, use imagery that I try to get, have people um, get their mind around, and I and I use imagery of uh, the RPMs. You know, you know, uh, revolution per minute in a car, where some kids are operating with pretty high RPMs and they're and they're pretty efficient, and then there are the kids who you know they're a range of tasks. You know, when I'm evaluating them. You know, let's say say the average time, uh, you know, I start with a task, a copying task where, you know, putting down different symbols for them to copy and to um, recall later on. Let's say the average takes about 10 minutes. So this child, and not necessarily for perfectionism, it's taking double the time or maybe even sometimes triple the time. They're just, a, a child that has a less weak fit this pattern. Everything was, there was a processing speed that was just much slower, uh, whether you, you know, involved my talking to the child, his answering the questions, copying, that this processing speed and sluggish cognitive tempo was a factor. So you could imagine when that child is in class and, you know, all right, kids, everybody open up their books and let's turn to page such and such. And, you know, everybody's opening up those child's, Hearing hello, kid, you know, okay, kid, you know, he's almost behind that command, and then the other people around are starting to complete the task, and he or she is still trying to catch up to it. So I, I think it's a very significant factor, a variable, mm-hmm. and it does play in with the executive functions, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, getting started with tasks, staying the course. From, sustained mental effort, it, it, you know, they're all interacting there to, to, you know, when you're, when those functions are working well, you're kind of zipping along. And when they're not, I, I joke with the kids, well, they, well, I know you're not going to become, a, you're probably not going to become an emergency room doctor. You know, it's like, then they laugh because they get it. They know, they go, right, or, you know, that kind of thing, you know, when you have to think rapidly and, and to make quick decisions. But so many people can't do that. Why don't we have them? The common sense tells me, okay, that's okay. We'll give that those people enough time. We'll, they'll come along. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, some people just are not good at following directions. You know, there's the processing mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that too, right. I could see how, you know, when you talk about that, that really needs to be considered too. And I think that... Um, you know, a lot of times these kids fall through the cracks is because they get caught in that catch-22 where, mm-hmm. you know, maybe these executive functioning um, deficits are holding them back and they're floundering, um, you know, because, you know, they may be working at grade level on a lot of different <clears throat> areas, um, but, you know, they, their testing is very poor. So, you know, it's hard for the parent to get accommodations because they say, well, the child tested okay, but the child really isn't keeping up and is really struggling. Um, 
And, you know, I, I think also that IQ gets confused in all of this. And you wrote that, you know, we're not given our IQ at birth, um, you know, lining up in heaven. So what is the importance of the IQ and testing? Well, it's still, it still is being used. You know, I, one of the essays, I think the essay that you're referring to is called Help, I'm Being Held Hostage by My IQ. And, you know, it's it's the idea that, you know, in fact, I talked about, you know, kids being or kids being lined up in heaven. Okay, step up. Let me give you your IQ score before you go down to earth. Okay, this one I'm going to give a 95. Okay, stamp it in. And the next one gets an 84. Oh, you're not going to get too much help because you're in a, the low average range. Well, what is that? You know, there's too much of this adherence to the full-scale IQ that then results in whether the child is or is not going to get services. Well, to me, struggling is struggling. You know, if a person has an IQ of 88 or 92, they're fundamentally the same. It's like a couple of point differences in real terms. They're not. They're not. They're not different. But we'll we'll say that the 91 is in the quote average range, and therefore not eligible for services. But the 88 or 89 on a bell-shaped curve is fundamentally the same kid. But that kid is struggling. That's where I, I have trouble with it, with it. And I give the IQ test, but not for the IQ score as much as what the profile tells me about the subtest and how the kid is processing information. But I think there's still this overemphasis on this full-scale IQ score that I'm, you know, research and clinical practice seem to, to not support. So how do a pa- how does a parent get past this roadblock when their child may you know test average um, or have a high IQ or for whatever reason um, a district may say well they're not you know eligible for services you know how does a parent get past that and get their kids the support they need? Well, it's a huge issue, and I, I think often they don't. And I don't mean to sound negative. I think that that I call it the zone of no zone. If you're in the lower portion of the average range. By and large, you, I, is my understanding, what I see all the time, you're not going to be eligible for service in the school. Now, they can work for the 504 plan. 504 plan is not linked to IQ, but, you know, 504 plan is not generally giving direct services. I think for those parents, they have to try and seek outside services. You know, you know it brings up, you know, issues of economics and, and you know, getting the kids to a center, to a learning therapist. But at that point, I tell parent, I try to train parents into thinking, look, there are things you can control and things you can't. You can make a decision to come into my office or go into another office and see this specialist or go to the uh, you know, tutoring center where the in-school is harder to control because it's governed by state regulations, governed by special ed law. You know, the teachers have to follow right. it in. You know the the pro you know the the established parameters. So I think that rather than banging your head against the wall as a parent, if you can, you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to advocate as much as I can in school to get as, to get what I can. But if if the child truly is not eligible for service, you know, and I do see struggling going on in the child, then I'm going to see if I can get outside help. But it's where it is, you know, it's a reality. Right. And you know, I think that one of the problems is that unfortunately in this day and age with every all these schools wanting acceler- accelerated degrees and mm-hmm. um, you know, being rewarded um financially for, you know, being having higher grades, the teachers mm-hmm. aren't really able to teach. The teachers are prepping the standardized testing, standardized testing, in my opinion. And the child that really needs more time to be taught is really falling through the cracks. And, you know, I, I loved what you said that, you know, parents will come to you and say, well, how do we fix this? How do we fix this mm-hmm. child? And you said children aren't broken. They don't need fixing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are two roads to take. So, you know, mm-hmm. how does a parent get on the right path? Well, you know, it's, you know, it's, and I try to get across this notion to parents, and sometimes it's satisfying, and sometimes it's not to them. And I say, well, how do we fix this? And I'm like, well, they're not car engines. They're not going to be fixed. We can work on these skills, 
And I think that, that let's if we stay skill focused and say, okay, we're really get clear on what specific skill. Are we talking decoding? Are we talking comprehension, organizational skills? Really get clear on what skill it is that you're targeting. That, I think, gets you on the right road. The other part of the road issue is that there are kids that are on a smoother road. You know, they just, they, they just by, from kindergarten, you know, they, they kind of just go right along. They don't necessarily need the outside support or the services. I'm not saying they have no problems, but they have much less. It's the, the children of concern that we're talking about are on a rougher road. And I want to get parents, I'm trying to get parents to understand that we can help smooth the road for them, but we're not going to make it an absolutely smooth one. You know, they're not necessarily going right. to be fully on grade level. That that might not be a good standard, but that if we can at least give the kid a sense of encouragement and a sense of connection, that is so important. I know Dr. Hallowell talks about this that notion of connection. Mm-hmm. I talked about it in Shutdown Learner. It's, you know, to me it's everything. It's the emotional fuel that if you can get that emotional fuel into the kid's tank, then then they're not then they're not shutting down. And then they're not going to feel discouraged and, and off track, you know, and feel like right. giving up. Yeah, it's finding subtle. something they're good at is so important. You know, something that they can feel good about when they're you know, when they're really struggling with academics or reading, you know, you find anything yeah. else, you know, a guitar, anything, just to have, let right. them have that self-confidence. Right. And one of the most important chapters, in my opinion, in this book is um, the chapter, What's Going On um, in the Head of a Boy with a Learning Disability? And, mm-hmm. you know, what have you learned from these kids and about how they're feeling? You know, tell the parents, um, you know, about latter in the, the chapter you wrote about the violin. Uh, achievement and self-worth, and it, okay. it's just such an important chapter. So tell the parents about that. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, the, the inside-the-head stuff is I try to put myself inside the child's head. You know, what's, what is he thinking about? You know, boy, you know, he's especially the writing process. You know, it's, uh, you know, okay, kids, well, I want you to write about your weekend. And the, inside the kid's head, he's like, my weekend, you know, what do you mean, right about my week? I have no. And then he looks to his right and he sees the girl next to him, and she's already, you know, writing a number of sentences, and he's sitting there going, I, you know, just within inside of him, he's already frustrated with this whole thing, and he's saying to himself, I have no idea what I'm doing. I can't stand this. I mean, I, I hate Susie. She's she's already completing her essay. And, uh, you know, it, it's that kind of thing. And, you know, the violin part of this is that I, that I collect these stories from kids. It's part of a psychology battery where basically they're writing to a, a violin card. And the, and the kids, the themes of broken violins or feeling discouraged come through in these stories. And it's, it's these stories that tell a good deal about, you know, how, where they are developmentally in terms of are they encouraged, discouraged, you know, feeling defeated, that that kind of thing. You know, and you often see that, um, you know, these these kids that have this self-esteem issues or that are really struggling, um, you know, social skills and learning difficulties mm-hmm. seem to collide. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how you know, why do social skills and learning disabilities um, seem to affect these kids so much? I, you know, I learned this a lot of years ago, and I've also heard uh, Dr. Barkley speak about it. I learned this when I was at the Hilltop Prep School in uh, the main line of Philadelphia, and I remember the director saying about the, the kids with learning disabilities, it was, these were teenagers, he said, you know, when you're talking to kids with learning disabilities, you need to not necessarily be thinking about you know, if you're with a 15-year-old, you know, try to stay away from thinking, well, he's 15, she's 15, she should be doing certain things. That these kids are operating on average at a younger developmental level. And I think Dr. Barkley has talked about that as well, where, mm-hmm. you, know, they, you know, effectively take a third or a quarter of the years off and you kind of are in the zone of where they are. And I think that, of course, then that affects social interactions. I mean, there are many other reasons, too, beside that. You know, just take language processing. Moms or parents will describe to me 
how the child's interacting, say, in the back seat of the car, you know, and in the, in the after coming out of a movie. And, you know, so a couple of kids, well, what did you, you know, they're, they're, they're verbally very rapid in talking about the movie, and, and the, the child, say, with a language processing issue, you know, is either having trouble keeping up, maybe saying something inappropriate, meaning that they, they just didn't understand the language as well. And, you know, you can imagine the, the, the snickers and the twitting, you know, hittering, the, oh, you know, she doesn't get it, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. That right. then leads to some degree of ridicule. You know, so it could, could be a terrible, vicious cycle. Um, a book that came out many years ago that, I, that was revised, I, I love, called No One to Play With, the social side of learning disabilities by Betty Osmond. It really speaks to this. So it's a, it's a very big issue. And you know, does it work the other way? Um, could you know? Could really part uh, or could the cause of a learning disability be social? Um, could it be bullying? Could it be psychological? Maybe having. Um, emotional problems, troubles at home, could that lead to learning problems? Yeah, I think so. You know, it is interesting when you said it could work the other way. I thought you were going in another direction. I will try to answer your question. That, this, that there's also a segment of the population that we're talking about who are have wonderful social skills. I, don't, I want to give them that, that mm-hmm. that's their domain. Right. These kids are incredibly, you know, com- you know, interact beautifully with other people, but they're reading brain and their parts of their academic development are not are not really as as you know functioning as well but they are very socially oriented people that's um, that's yeah, very think, true yeah i mean i i remember the again thinking back to the kids i interacted with and he'll probably many others i've seen over the years incredibly social and very capable that way so it, the generalizing is hard it's just that it, you know you ha- that's where you have to sort of you know really look at each child and 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 get a sense of their profile and their different intelligences, so to speak, and what's working well for them. Right. And, you know, I think it comes to a point, especially when they start to, um, you know, get into the um, high school um, grades and and the work becomes difficult. And I don't know about other districts, but in mine, I mean, everyone is expected to graduate with... um, you know, advanced diplomas. And, um, you know, I think there becomes a point where where inclusion becomes a question. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is inclusion a good fit for most kids? Why is it important for most kids? You know, I mean, we, I remember when I got my first job as a special ed teacher on Staten Island, right near where the area where you and I were talking about before with Hurricane mm-hmm. Uh But where when I was teaching this class, I mean, it literally was one of these, I, I always thought to myself, we should put this sign out, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. You know, that this, this classroom was literally, like, tucked away near, you know, the, in the boiler room or something, you know, this special ed room down there. You know, and, and getting these kids to be part of the mainstream was such a, a big issue. So we've moved away from that kind of thinking, and inclusion is... You know, uh, and it's just a word. We're, you know, we're including. We're mm-hmm. we're not leaving out. We're that we're helping people to be a part altogether. The downside of it is that they're, you know, if if the person next to me is, you know, swimming out there in that part of the pool, and I'm just really, you know, it's like we have to really watch where they are in this inclusion model. And I think that, again, giving the messages of encouragement and keeping trying to keep the kids connected while they're in this model of inclusion is the issue. Right. That's why I love differentiated education and mm-hmm. really taking advantage of, um, you know, specific courses. You know, like it could be, yeah. you know, film or drama or music sure. or whatever is, is important for these kids too. But, you know, as we were talking about before, with the incredible pressure for these kids, um, but let's face it, I mean, in, in this day and age, the kids in eighth grade are doing 10th grade math. And right. by the time they're in twelfth, eleventh, twelfth grade, they're, they're doing college material. So you know, with the with this pressure for the advanced classes, accelerated classes, um, you know, how do parents explain to their their teen that um, you know they're not a good fit for those types of classes without hurting their self esteem? Or what other direction could they point them in? 
it's it's a hard balance. I mean, a couple of people said to me, "Well, is, is the message of your book that you know he should become a, a you know blue collar laborer?" And I said, "No, that's not the message. You know, it's." But I think the message is to really value the child's strength and to really understand it. You know, one of the people I refer to in the first book, and I've mentioned similar things in school struggles. You know, he's a Patrick. He's a photographer, and uh, you know, a teacher came over to him and said, "You know." You've got a great eye. You'd make a great photographer. And that, that one statement changed his life. I think we need to find those kind of one statement things that, wow, you're really good at that. That's your gift. That's really what you're great with. And build on that. And, you know, not be phonally, you know, in a phony way, cheerleading like I do. Right. You know, great swing, honey, if the kid struck out. Well, really take a look at it. Try to value <laughs> You know, what, yeah, oh, wonderful swing, honey. No, it wasn't such a good swing. I mean, it was, you know, but it's like, be realistic. Okay, you're real. this is what you're great with. That, that, you know, this is this is what, you know, the kind of thing that you can do for a living or you can do in school or there are programs right. out there. You know, it's, it's, you know you ha- we have to really try. And I do think the model of the intelligences, the seven, eight different intelligences, applies a good deal. You know, is it a music intelligence? Absolutely. Is it a social intelligence? I mean, I'm not a psychologist because I had a great math brain, trust. You know? <laughs> no, it's so important, you know, and that's why I tell parents. Parents, you know, might email me or they'll say, oh, I'm going to an IEP meeting. I'm so nervous. Right. What do I do? And I said, you start with the strengths. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. You start letting them know where your child's strengths are and to right. really build on the strengths. Don't take away that um, you know, that art class if your child is gifted in art and give them an extra reading class. You know, it it's really building on their strengths that's gonna make them competent and, you know, successful. So, you know, what is the most important thing for a parent? of a shutdown learner. I mean, a parent who just sees their, their child not wanting to go to school, really struggling, you know, crying, tears, meltdowns with homework. You know, what, what is the most important thing for well, them to know? I think I think the most important thing, I, I find, and it's mostly driven by the moms. I'm not trying to leave anybody out. But, you know, but let's say to trust your parent, as a parent, whether, you know, the, prime, the parent who's mostly involved with the school stuff, usually it's one or the other parent or a single parent. But, but anyway, the, the most important thing, I think, is to start with trusting your own, in, your God, trusting your intuition, your, trusting that if you think there's a problem, I have almost never seen a mom or a parent come in to me and say, you know, here are my concerns and that they're wrong. I mean, they're almost, now mm-hmm. they might not be as wrong, they may be a little bit over the top sometimes, but for the most part, what they think is going on is. Now, whether that means the child will be ultimately eligible for service, that's a different question. But listening to yourself and trusting your judgment and then trying to find the right kind of people, I think you need a team. You know, I did, uh, you, know you need a consultant person, somebody you can call, I'm not saying it has to be me. I'm just saying that, you know, mm-hmm. somebody like myself who you can kind of trust and feel like you can call and say, is this making sense? Does this, you know, what do we have to do next? What's our approach here? And have some uh, one or two people, not too many, guide you and be there for you. I think those two variables would be very helpful. Right. I think, you know, that's really the way you hit the nail on the head. I mean, not only do we have to make the uh, – kids confident, but we have to make the parents empowered and feel confident, too. So, you know, thank you for joining me. The book is fantastic. So tell the listeners where they can get this book and um, give them your website. Well, thank you. I I really enjoyed chatting with you. It was great. It was fun to catch up again. And you guys do a great job. I think, you know, Coffee Clutch is is wonderful. There's so many great interviews. Um, The the website is www.drsell, D-R-S-E-L-Z, com or you can also go shutdownlearner.com. Um, and, you know, that's the books are available there on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, um, co- you know, distance consultations. I, I talk to people from various parts of the country. So, um, you know, that's where to find me. Okay. And, you know, hoping uh, you'll be back. I mean, you're a treasure trove of information for parents. And thank we're just, you. This was the tip of the iceberg. So, again, thank, thank you. you. Um, thank Wednesday you very night. Much. 
You're welcome. Wednesday night on Bright Not Broken with um, our host Diane Kennedy and Rebecca Banks is Dr. Linda Silverman, and she is going to be, she's the author of Giftedness 101. And, you know, we have a lot of parents out there with twice exceptional kids. This is the show for twice exceptional kids, and this is an exceptional guest. So that's Wednesday night at 9 p.m. And then Sunday night I will be back with um, Dr. Lynn Kenny. And we're going to be discussing expectations. Who are they for? Dealing with outside pressure of, um, you know, setting goals for your child for the right reasons. And that will be Sunday night at 9. So thank you for joining us. You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here at The Coffee Clatch. Visit us at The Coffee Clatch, www.thecoffeeclatch.com. And thank you for Mayor Johnson for sponsoring our show. Have a great night, everyone.